Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Whether it's the brutal repression of Muslims in India or the doublespeak over America's own creation mythology, Gerald Horn breaks down the elements of today's incipient fascism for our final F-word segment of 2019. Any nation that tolerates slavery then accepts Jim Crow contains and bears the seeds of fascism. And it's also apparent that many of these critics, so-called, of the 1619 Project do not want to deal with that ugly reality. And scores of people have joined actress Jane Fonda in being arrested every Friday at the U.S. Capitol to demand action on the climate crisis. We present voices at Fire Drill Fridays speaking about a just transition to green energy with good jobs. Us in our community, we've been building solar thermal panels for the last couple of years. We're heating houses in northern Minnesota. We've got some wind turbines and we're about to rock the hemp economy. So we're there. We just think everybody should get with it. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. The House of Representatives voted Thursday to impeach President Donald Trump on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of justice. Thursday's vote makes Trump only the third U.S. president to be impeached in U.S. history. Like the impeachment of Bill Clinton, Trump's impeachment is a partisan matter, with Democrats and Republicans divided on whether Trump's conversation with the president of Ukraine included an impeachable offense, a quid pro quo of weapon sales in exchange for an investigation of Ukraine's role in the 2016 presidential election and of the role that former Vice President Joe Biden played in that country's affairs. Presidential candidate and U.S. Representative Tulsi Gabbard drew fire as the sole Democrat to vote present during the historic vote. She explained later in a statement that almost all U.S. presidents could be impeached for their illegal wars that have killed millions around the world. She added that Trump's actions were worth a censure, but not worth the threat of removal from office. So after doing my due diligence and reviewing the 658-page impeachment report, I came to the conclusion that I could not in good conscience vote either yes or no. I am standing in the center and decided to vote present. I could not in good conscience vote against impeachment because I believe President Trump is guilty of wrongdoing. I also could not in good conscience vote for impeachment because removal of a sitting president must not be the culmination of a partisan process fueled by tribal animosities that have so gravely divided our country. As the impeachment process consumed headlines and oxygen in D.C., Senate Leader Mitch McConnell pushed through 12 more Trump right-wing judicial nominees. According to PBS NewsHour, McConnell has confirmed 200 Trump judges, most of whom are young and will shape American law for decades. And this week, that secretive FISA court we discussed last week accused the FBI of misleading its judges about the evidence for wiretapping former Trump campaign volunteer Carter Page. The court ordered the FBI to propose changes in how it seeks permission to surveil U.S. citizens. The move comes after that DOJ Inspector General report found that the FBI lied and omitted key information in order to secure warrants to investigate the Trump campaign. 
And this week, the Senate followed the House in approving that $738 billion budget for the Pentagon, which includes Trump's Space Force, an expansion of the arms race into the heavens. Senator Bernie Sanders, who participated in Thursday night's presidential debate, released a video responding to the Pentagon budget. I am very proud that I am the only candidate in the Democratic primary to have voted against all of Trump's defense budgets. There is something a little bit wrong when we are now spending more money on the military than the next 10 nations combined. And at a time when we have some 500,000 men and women sleeping out on the streets or in emergency shelters, we're now spending close to $750 billion a year on the military. We need a strong defense to protect America, not to make the military-industrial complex huge profits. In environmental news, an analysis published Wednesday found that exposure to toxic air, water, soil, and chemical pollution kills 8.3 million people worldwide each year, with the United States among the top 10 countries that have the most pollution-related premature deaths, underscoring the necessity of urgent, collaborative efforts to safeguard public health. Putting the total mortality figure into context, the report said that, quote, pollution kills three times as many people a year as HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria combined. Pollution is responsible for 15 times the number of deaths caused by war and other forms of violence each year, end quote. The report titled 2019 Pollution and Health Metrics Global, Regional, and Country Analysis is published by the Global Alliance on Health and Pollution. Several actions in D.C. this week address violence against women. Two different groups of women, one at the Lincoln Memorial and one in front of the White House, performed the song and choreography to A Rapist in Our Path, made popular by Chilean women to protest the scores of women and girls participating in current social justice protests there who report being sexually assaulted by police or military personnel. The rapist is you! Wednesday's action at the White House was sponsored by Activate Labs, and Sunday's action at the Lincoln Memorial was organized by the Purple Movement. And community organizers presented the first in a series of programs focused on protecting black girls from sex trafficking. Chantel James attended and filed this report. At Thurgood Marshall Academy in Southeast Tuesday night, Tribe Inc. hosted the first of its Protect Black Girls series a dialogue called Stop Trafficking. In the heart of a D.C. community directly impacted by the trafficking of black children, a village conversation about the topic featured panelists Tina Front of Courtney's House, Rashida Prilo of Hope Court, and Tempe Hamilton, social worker. From their expertise and as community members, 
They drew attention to the alarming rates that juveniles are sold into the sex trade from the very streets of D.C., and discussed community strategies to stay vigilant to the signs and keep youth who may be at risk safe. Tina Front, herself a survivor of trafficking, puts the epidemic in its historic context for D.C. and shows us how we can recognize and think about trafficking. I'll take you all back because when we say trafficking, people always go, oh, it's this new thing, it's this new thing. And as we all know, I wish we could say that things didn't come back around and that this was a new thing, but it's not new, and we should know it's not new. So I'm going to go back on age a little bit because I might be a little older than y'all. <laughs> so I'm going to take you down memory lane, and that would be down 14th Street. And if we'll go back into the... 80s we'll do we won't even go to the 70s for you we'll do early 80s and we'll do late 80s and mid 90s because that's important because that was trafficking so there were pimps that used to come to dc all from all over the world and those pimps was on 14th street and on 14th street used to go all the way up you know i'm so dc because i'm gonna tell you went uptown and it went all the way uptown and all the way uptown is up clifton terrace so all the way down 14th and k so all the way up Clifton Terrace was a track. That track was with nothing but pimps and young girls. And people used to bring their whole family members out to come see the site and would point at the girls in the middle of the night at early daytime and would see it. And people would make jokes and they would laugh about it and they would go up to the girls. They took pictures and they made fun of it. And guess what? That was trafficking then. So we just named it trafficking. Trafficking is a governmental term. And it's a legal term, so pimps get charged for trafficking. So then we separate and we say pimps and a trafficker is not the same thing. But in reality, it always has been the same thing. So understand that pimps have always been here. Understand that the women and girls, because they were always girls, never got paid. So this is nothing new, and we showcased it. So what actually happened was it was an epidemic in our city, and instead of actually fixing the problem, what the police used to do was make the girls walk across the 14th Street Bridge into Virginia with their shoes off and said, let it be Virginia's problem. And that's the way they used to actually solve it before everyone started really seeing what trafficking was. So it's never been hidden. It's just been something that we've never understood. So when you was making jokes and it was funny, I myself was there and many other people were there as well that aren't here with us and aren't bringing us what's with us here today because it was always the same thing. We just renamed it trafficking. What happened was we separated what it really was. So what happens is pimps glamorize, right? And that's what they do. So it looks so glamorizing to youth, especially in the movies, especially with the music we have, it's glamorized. And because it's glamorized, actually pimps did an amazing job. And the amazing job they did because they're amazing marketers. Because they made the world think that they didn't exist but all these girls is out here. Like. And that's why, to this day, every day I have an interesting job. Not only do I get to help everybody, but every day I have to convince people that what happened to me actually happened. And that has actually happened to our youth. I have to convince them every single day. Because they think it's still a lie because of all the great marketing that Pimps has done. So to answer her question, what we can do is something real simple that I wish people would do. Learn the truth about what trafficking is, right? Because we are telling lies to people. Learn when the next of the Protect Black Girls series will take place by visiting the website of Tribe Inc., blackgirltribe.com. From Southeast DC, this is Chantal James.
And finally, a setback and victory for the Fight for 15 movement. The National Labor Relations Board dealt a blow to McDonald's workers with their ruling earlier this month that the fast food giant is not a joint employer and thus not liable for labor violations committed by its many franchisees. The good news is that contract workers at Dulles and National Airports won their fight to be paid $15 an hour starting in 2023. And this just in, McMillan Park supporters are demonstrating in front of the D.C. Superior Court this morning at 500 Indiana Avenue. Judges will be considering restraining D.C. that wants to demolish the historic site in northwest D.C. to build condos. For more information, email smac.dc at gmail.com, smac.dc at gmail.com, or call 202-656-3012, 202-656-3012. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Voices for a Just Transition to Clean Energy. Stay with us. today because we have a lot of young people. Some have come from New York, some have come from Baltimore, some are from D.C. They're part of the Fridays for the Future and the Sunrise Movement. Today we're going to focus on jobs, community, and a just transition, making sure that workers and people who are impacted by fossil fuels and will be impacted as we transition off fossil fuels will be cared for, will be able to get good union jobs, benefits, pensions, and feel secure. We cannot leave them behind. Awesome. We'll leave fossil fuel behind, but not the workers. <laughs> okay, I'm going to introduce you to somebody that I love a lot. Sally Field is an actor and director who starred in countless films and memorable television shows. She won an Oscar for the labor classic, Norma Ray, and a second Oscar for Places in the Heart, three Emmys, two Golden Globes, and a Partridge in a and so many others. And just last Sunday, she won the Kennedy Center honor. Trump wasn't there, so she thought it was okay. Anyway, please welcome my dearest friend, Sally Field. 
Hello, everyone. Oh, my gosh. Look at you. Thank you. Thank you for coming out in the rain. Thank you for being here. I have no note cards. I come with my heart and my voice. I am a mother. I am a grandmother. The time is now. We, we cannot sit back in our comfort zones, on our couches, and wonder, what can we do? We can get out. We can do something. In the rain, whatever it takes. I, I've, I've been learning. I have been trying to learn. I, like everyone else, feels this is such a big problem. How can, how can we ever uh, accomplish anything? But we can. It is being done. In other countries, it's being done. In Norway, in France, in Germany, it's being done. And little communities all over this country because people are demanding a change for better lives, for their lives, for water, for air, for our earth, for our tomorrow. I, I was lucky enough to star in a film called Norma Ray based on a real hero, Crystal Lee Sutton, a fighter, a unionizer, who fought with her community of black and brown and white workers to change her workplace in the textile mills, the textile industry. And she changed it. She did it. But, but, those industries who had to pay them larger wages, a slightly more living wage, which it wasn't quite, uh, and better working conditions, they left. They left and went to another country altogether where they could pay the workers next to nothing and treat them more abominably because they wanted more money in their pockets. And they decimated Norma Ray's, Crystal Lee Sutton's communities. They were decimated. And that's because they had no transition. That's what they're here to talk to you about today. This is a possibility that can actually happen. It can happen. It is happening. Where people can transition to a better job, a greener job, in a workplace that will support them and their families, a living, more than a living wage. This is actually happening. It's not pie in the sky. It's not a, a, a dream over the rainbow. It's real. But what has to happen is everyone has to get up out of their comfort zone and scream now. And don't listen because they're all fighting other battles against each other. If they're not listening, if we can't get them to listen and move, then do it yourself. Do it yourself. And, and wherever you can in your communities, learn online. Go to James. I don't know all the, all the hashtags and all of that. Somebody else will tell you all of that. But you can gather this information. It gives you hope to know that it really is being done. Some of the people that are going to speak here today, as the, as the rain is coming down and we're soaking wet and this history is being made all around us, it's now. It's now. Learn what you can do. Get out of your comfort zone and do it. Thank you for being here. I'm soaking wet. I'm freezing cold. And I am proud as hell to be here. economist and author working on issues of indigenous economics, food, 
and Energy Policy. She co-founded Honor the Earth with the Indigo Girls as a platform to raise awareness of money of and money for indigenous struggles for environmental justice. Globally and nationally, Winona is known as a leader in the issues of cultural-based sustainable development strategies, renewable energy, and sustainable food systems. Winona is one of the leaders in the work of protecting indigenous plants and heritage foods from patenting and genetic engineering. Please welcome the remarkable Winona LaDuke. I have some water protection grandchildren. We came from northern Minnesota. And we brought this is Savannah and okay for this guy. This is Savannah and Wasmo. And I'm eating into a mug and hello my relatives. Happy to be here with everybody today, all the courageous people who are defending us out here in DC. These are my two granddaughters from Whiter. We're water protectors. We spent seven years fighting a pipeline that has not happened and is not going to happen. Line three, that's Enbridge. It's Canadian multinational corporations' proposal to bring 915,000 barrels a day of tar sands oil to this country, and we think that's a really bad idea. So as we stand here, our community, the White Earth Reservation, the Anishinaabe people, we fought off one pipeline a few years ago called the Sandpiper, and then they returned with a pipeline called the Dakota Access Pipeline out in North Dakota. And we stood with our fellow water protectors out there. And what we know is the same thing y'all know. We don't need more pipelines for oil companies. What we need is infrastructure for people. We don't need pipes in Minnesota for a pipeline nobody wants. What we need is pipes in Flint, Michigan for water. We got a deal infrastructure in this country, and what you need is to put people to work fixing infrastructure that's falling apart so that we can all live and quit wasting so much stuff, whether it is water or energy. So that's really this time we have, and all across this world, everywhere in this world, there are people standing up for their water. There are people standing up to protect future generations and standing up and saying, that's enough carbon. All these school kids know the carbon's supposed to be in the soil, not in the air. You know, I don't know if somebody missed that lesson. So up at White Earth Reservation, we've been fighting for a long time, but you know, we had the original Green New Deal. I guess y'all know that, right? Indigenous people had the original Green New Deal, you know? We remember when you could drink the water from every river. Remember that? 50 million buffalo, passenger pigeons that blackened the sky. That's when America was great. That's when America was great. Tremendous agrobiodiversity. And if you want to, we, when we move ahead, we have to remember those relatives. And we have to work to make things good for them. Make the water good for our fish so that they can stay there. Make the, make the land good so that our animals can come back and take care of things the way they're supposed to because a cow is not a buffalo. A buffalo can live in the winter and a cow requires a fossil fuels economy. We don't need that anymore. So in my community, we've been fighting this for a long time, but what we realized is that no one was going to fix stuff for us because nobody fixes stuff for Native people. you got to do it yourself. We're not on anybody's political agenda across the board. 
And so in our community, we started first by putting up wind turbines about 10 years ago. So we got some wind turbines up actually from Denmark, the world's leader in wind turbines. And uh, it turns out, I don't know how that worked out, but Indian reservations are the windiest place in the country. <laughs> so I'm feeling like that's what energy justice looks like. Yeah. Instead of coal generators and nuclear waste dumps in our territories or the tar sands, what we should have is wind turbines and they should be financed as a part of the divest, invest movement. Yeah. You want the next economy? Fund that. And then in my community, we also have solar thermal. That's a, we have eight fire solar. That's our facility. And we build solar thermal panels to reduce the heating bills of people all across the North Country. And looks like you might need some out here, too. Mm -hmm. Yep, you can save 20% of your heating bill. So who wouldn't want to save 20% of their heating bill by putting up a solar panel on the south side of your house? Solar thermal. Eight fire solar. She's got it. That's right. Yeah, that's what we got to do. You know, we got to be smart about this, and this is our chance to be smart. Because if you want someone, you know, always say, either, you're either at the table or you're on the menu. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We don't want to be on the menu anymore. We want to be at the table. In fact, we want to set the table. You have been listening to Voices from Fire Drill Fridays, the climate crisis action at the U.S. Capitol organized by actress Jane Fonda, who will be at the Capitol every Friday through January 10th, including today, December 20th, one day before her 82nd birthday. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And for our final F-word segment on fascism this year, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston, and the author of more than three dozen books, including this year, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism Versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Well, thank you. And this year we've discussed, I guess, what could be called right-wing aggression and surge by elites around the globe, and at the same time, uprisings against the stepped-up repression, most recently in India, where several people have been killed and more than a thousand detained in protests over a new citizenship law that excludes Muslims. So I'm wondering if we can use this as a jumping off point to talk about what this uprising means for India and to put it in some kind of historical context for what's happening there and around the globe right now. Well, with regard to India, which soon will be the most populous nation on planet Earth, it also contains tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Muslims, which means it has one of the largest Islamic populations on planet Earth as well. Quite recently, the Hindu nationalist government of Prime Minister Modi made an attempt to make sure that religious minorities from the sub-region are allowed entry into India 
including Sikhs, including Christians, but not including Muslims. This has caused a firestorm of protests. And what's striking from the point of view of Washington is that the United States has been repeatedly and consistently and insistently denouncing the People's Republic of China because of allegations concerning its treatment of its Muslim minority. But Washington has been eerily silent about this mistreatment and maltreatment of Muslims in India. Obviously, it has everything to do with this news gathering strategic alliance between the United States and India that will be targeting China. But I'm not sure if this kind of alliance is going to be sustainable, particularly given the mass protests that have been taking place in India, uh, which have rocked New Delhi in particular. And I should also say, since we're on this point of the maltreatment and mistreatment of Muslims in the subregion, that just recently you saw at the International Court of Justice at The Hague that the government of Myanmar, that is to say Burma, was brought there as a result of activity by the West African state of Gambia, which has a substantial Muslim population, basically charging the Myanmar government with maltreatment and mistreatment of its Rohingya population, which is predominantly Muslim. And one of my takeaways from Gambia making this maneuver was that there is a substantial percentage of black Americans who have roots in what is now Gambia, uh, but it's quite striking that Gambia, as far as I know, has made little effort to take the United States to the International Court of Justice because of maltreatment and mistreatment of black Americans or even Gambian Americans. In any case, back to India, tensions are rising with neighboring Pakistan as a result of this mistreatment of Muslims. As you know, both states have nuclear arsenals. Tensions are rising with Pakistan also because of India's crackdown on its province of Kashmir, uh, which has a substantial Muslim population as well. But once again, Washington has not been as active on this particular issue as it has been on issues concerning Muslims in China. Well, one of the things that I try to remember to do in these F-word segments is to go back to the economics. And we've talked about our touchstone for the series has been the commentary by 1960s revolutionary George Jackson that talked about fascism as when the, the actions of the government and corporations become you know indiscernible. I mean, I know the economic calculations here in the U.S. of stigmatizing immigrants, stigmatizing Muslims, creating an other so that working class Americans of all types can point to another group as the source of their economic misery or pain, as opposed to what the elites like Jeff Bezos, for example, what they're doing instead of what poor immigrants are doing, so who have no power. So what's the economic calculation in a place like India? Well, first of all, I think that if you can understand U.S. slavery, you can understand the phenomenon you've just articulated. That is to say that the denigration of black people was conducted in no small measure because that denigration helped to make them seem to be less than, which meant that they were then forced to work for nothing, and then under the Jim Crow era, uh, work for less. Right now, with regard to the geostrategic calculations, the United States is fearful that China is in the passing lane 
and it wants to bring China to heel. In the Democratic Party debate on Thursday, just yesterday, uh, there was a rather Cold War exchange with regard to China, with the Democrats pledging and promising to be tougher on China than the current occupant of the White House. And I think that that has everything to do with economics. That is to say that U.S. corporations like Apple and Microsoft fear that with the growth of the Chinese technology industry, that they will be left sprawling in the dust. And therefore, they see India as a country that will help to bring China to heel. And therefore, they're willing to look the other way when India denigrates its 200 million strong Muslim population. And of course, within India itself, you have a number of growing corporations that are very heavily invested in everything from steel to autos to software that likewise would like to have a cheap labor population to exploit, and they are eyeing the Muslim population in that context. So I guess I'm wondering then, why would India try to ban them as citizens? They're not banning them from the country. They're just stripping away certain protections that they would have as citizens, making them more vulnerable as workers. Well, this new law, is basically saying that refugees from the sub-region can be from virtually any religious denomination except for being Muslim. So that is the essence of the discrimination, trying to curtail and curb the growth of the Muslim population in order to ensure that a kind of Hindustan uh, can be created And that particular phenomenon is seen as something that will deflect many poor Hindus from their deteriorating incomes and life chances and whip them up in a kind of faux hysteria about the alleged growth and power and influence of the Muslim population, which therefore means it'll be easier to exploit the 80% of the Indian population that happens to be of Hindu extraction. When you speak about refugees, it reminds me that the status of refugee is being contested. It's being challenged in terms of what, what I understand to be the standing definition based on international law that people have a right to be a, a refugee to seek asylum. And if you look at what Trump is doing in this country, When you look at, secondly, what is happening in India right now, and there are other instances where people, because of largely these neoliberal policies that are happening around the globe, and also the climate change, many people are climate refugees, that refugees are being more imperiled by governments who want to challenge what is what is actually a, an international definition of someone who is able to seek asylum. Well, in terms of the broader question, I hate to sound like a broken record, but part of what we're describing and seeking to articulate is the fact that in recent years and recent decades, the class project, the project that involves the building of working class organizations through military trade unions, ultimately leading to a working class government uh, by dint of having socialism, has been in tremendous retreat. 
And as a direct result, you've seen the recrudescence of other kinds of identities, not least being white nationalism, not least being Hindu chauvinism, and not least being, as you saw in the British elections just last week, a kind of English nationalism. And so I think that the way out is clear, although difficult, which is seeking to revive this class-based project, which has been withering on the vine, I'm afraid to say, in recent years and decades. So I want to move to Syria. And if we aren't bombing Syria or somehow uh, increasing the misery index there, it's just not in the news. But I saw an interesting story that President Bashar al-Assad was basically warning that U.S. troops were looting oil from Syrian oil fields. And I guess I'm trying to remember if there was an actual warning to the troops and to the U.S. about basically this continued violation of international law, whether it's called looting, illegally occupying a country and then stealing its resources. So I want to talk about that, but also in relationship to what what Turkey is doing and what Turkey is saying uh, in that region and to the U.S. Well, with regard to Turkey, as you know, it's been under severe criticism from the government of France and also from other forces across the planet because of Turkey helping to provide sanctuary to religious zealots who enter Syria and attack the secular-based government in Damascus. We also see not only the looting of oil, but the looting of antiquities. Uh, Syria, as you know, has one of the more ancient civilizations on planet Earth, and those antiquities are winding up in museums in the global north, not to mention private residences in the global north. But I think the most recent news on Syria is the fact that it's chosen to participate in the Belt and Road Initiative from China, which is is this multi-billion, perhaps even trillion-dollar initiative to build bridges and roads and other kinds of infrastructure worldwide. And Hmm. remarkably, as Syria was making that announcement, the U.S. Congress was moving to place heightened sanctions on Syria, not only heightened sanctions on Syria, but heightened sanctions on governments that assist the Damascus-based regime, particularly Russia and Iran. And this within the context of recent revelations that suggested that some of these scare stories that have been reported about the Damascus regime using chemical weapons against its own people have been, shall we say, uh, inflated, to put it mildly. No, they've been false. (laughs) How about false? Right. But. And we, we should probably we should probably spell that out. So recently, whistleblowers involved in the OPCW report, the organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons. Yeah. So a whistleblower, at least one, I think more than one have come forward, basically saying that that report was doctored. That said that that indicated that there was some type of attack of, of toxic gas in Duma. And that of the two dozen or more people who worked on the report, only only the findings of one person was included in the report. And all the other findings countered this narrative that Assad had gassed his own people. 
and that there was evidence instead that the event was staged to make it look like an attack. And so that's what we're talking about, just to kind of fill in the blank there. Well, yes. And I should also say that with regards to the OPCW, it's remarkable, is it not, that the United States is still participating in that organization? Because if you look at what's happening globally, the Trump regime is either seeking to weaken uh, global organizations or seeking to engage in a kind of ultra-domination of uh, global uh, organizations and accords. I mean, for example, uh, look at the recent COP25 meeting in Spain dealing with climate change. We already know that the Trump regime is seeking to pull out of the Paris uh, Climate Accord and played an obstructionist role at the COP25 meeting. And this is part of, and parcel of this ongoing effort uh, to weaken organizations on the international level, if not dominate them in a kind of hysterical manner. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Professor Gerald Horn. This is our final segment called The F Word on Fascism for 2019. So we're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Professor Gerald Horn for our final segment called The F Word on Fascism for 2019. And Gerald, you know, of course, the news out of D.C. this week is the impeachment of Donald Trump, only the third time that a U.S. president has been impeached. And so as we talk about the impact of U.S. imperialism around the, the globe, our relationship with countries like India, you know, what's happening in Syria. What is that like the fifth or the seventh Arab country that we've destroyed in the last two decades? So how is the impeachment of Trump being seen around the world and how, how does that figure into this right wing march around the globe? Well, it's apparent that the GOP base is far from crumbling in the face of this impeachment and, in fact, may be consolidating, which does not bode well for November 2020, nor does it bode well, I'm afraid to say, for our ability to halt this incipient fascism. I should also mention that lost in the discussion with regard to what helped to trigger this impeachment inquiry is a point made by the now-reviled Glenn Simpson of Fusion GPS. Recall that he's a former Wall Street Journal writer who set up this consulting business that helped to work with Christopher Steele, the British intelligence agent, who came up 
with this, quote, evidence, unquote, with regard to Trump and Russia. Now, the reviled Simpson argues in his new book, Crime and Progress, that many external forces are now being accused of interference in U.S. elections. What he doesn't mention, however, is that this is a direct result of the United States interfering in so many elections all across the globe. And so it's inevitable that this would lead to either uh, accusations or actual attempts by other nations to interfere in U.S. elections. For example, uh, he brings up what happens in the 1990s with regard to all of these stories, investigations of Chinese and Chinese Indonesian contributions to the Democratic Party under Bill Clinton. He could have mentioned the recent charge that Trump's close comrade, the multimillionaire Thomas Barrick of Colony Capital, who was in charge of the inauguration, has been credibly accused of being a funnel for Gulf Arab money to the GOP. And so I think, unfortunately, this kind of salient point has been lost in the discussion with regard to impeachment. And I think it helps to contribute to this growing anger and confusion in the United States, which has bubbled over this week as a result of the impeachment resolution passing the House. And those kinds of financial details, I think that Some people may be aware of those, but like for most of us who are just following the news, the fact that you can have, you know, children dead in the border custody of the Trump administration, the fact that you have parents separated from their children to this day, parents don't know where their children are, the children don't know where their parents are. In any other context, they would be called kidnapped. They would be called stolen or trafficked. The fact that we just had 700,000 people cut from food stamps. We have a growing homeless problem. The fact that the same Nancy Pelosi who went through with this impeachment but did not want to go forward with any type of investigation against George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. I mean, for most of us who are just like observers, it seems Looney Tunes. It just seems like... And as I, John Kiriakou said last week, you know, you don't have to love Trump to question what's actually happening here. Well, I think that's a fair point. But I'll just return to the point I made at the top, which is that unfortunately and sadly and tragically, the 63 million strong Trump base does not seem to be in the process of deserting their man. We haven't talked this year about the 1619 project put out by the New York Times. And because the year is coming to a close, uh, we definitely should talk about it. And especially since your work, which we have discussed quite a bit, is used as a springboard for much of that discussion. And to educate a new generation of people about the founding of Jamestown and the the introduction of enslaved Africans to Jamestown, Virginia, 400 years ago. So why don't we talk about the project and what's happening with it now? But what's remarkable about this attack on Lerone Bennett is that once again, it was joined in by all of these elite historians who felt he had committed the ultimate sin by criticizing the sainted Abraham Lincoln. And you see the same kind of approach taken with regard to the 1619 Project, which had the temerity 
to puncture the creation myths that led to 1776 and the secession from the British Empire forming the United States of America. Now, what's interesting is that these were mostly black writers in the 1619 Project, and you may want to ask, well, what helped to drive them? And I suspect and I surmise that the rise of Trumpism, which is an incipient form of fascism, as suggested by former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright in her book, Fascism, A Warning, published during the early stages of the Trump regime, that many black people are now seeking a past that may help to shed light on this present dangerous moment of incipient fascism that we're facing. And yet, they find that these kinds of stories and histories written by these Ivy League historians are just not up to the task of shedding light on the current moment. In fact, I think it's fair to say that many of these Ivy League historians are proud of the fact that they don't really keep up to speed and up to date on current events. Uh, they're so mired in the past. Now, one of these historians actually said in these interviews that what's the big deal about slavery anyway? Everybody was doing it. Uh, now, of course, there's so many responses to that, I'm not sure where to start. But one is that at the same time, out of the other side of their mouth, they speak of the creation of the United States as this great leap forward for humanity, the founding fathers, so-called being brilliant, and that they helped to create the city on the hill. And somehow that seems something more than mundane, as suggested by their comment that everybody was doing it. Now, to be sure, there's a critique of the 1619 Project. Uh, that is to say that uh, we all know, at least many of us know, that the first enslaved Africans did not necessarily arrive in North America in 1619. You had enslaved Africans in Spanish Florida in 1565, in the 1520s, from their perch in Santo Domingo, the Spanish had brought enslaved Africans to what is now South Carolina, and they rebelled and, of course, defected to the Native American side. And, in fact, the whole story about how Africans and their indigenous allies kept the Spanish from settling and colonizing what is now the United States is one of the many reasons why the British and the English were able to triumph in North America. But in any event, going back to fascism, I think that the 1619 Project perhaps does not stress sufficiently that any nation that tolerates slavery then accepts Jim Crow contains and bears the seeds of fascism. And it's also apparent that many of these critics, so-called, of the 1619 Project do not want to deal with that ugly reality. They would like to continue to see the United States' creation as a step forward for humanity, despite slavery, despite genocide against Native Americans, which leads, it seems to me, inescapably to the point that perhaps some of these so-called intellectuals might even see fascism as a step forward for humanity, just like apparently they see a, a nation that carried on slavery as a step forward for humanity. Now, I should make a full disclosure. If you go to Twitter, you'll find that the 1619 Project is accused falsely of trafficking in ideas that I've circulated in some of my books. I'm being touted as the so-called evil genius 
behind the 1619 project, which is manifestly false. Although I should yeah. say that I am drafting a statement for the Association for the Study of African American Life and History that will incorporate some of these ideas that I'm putting forward to the WPFW audience to back up. And audiences around the country, BAI and Atlanta, WRFG. <laughs> okay. But in any case, some of these so-called scholars or equivalent of academic gentrifiers, uh, they moved into black history, awarding each other prizes for writing of black history, yet most, of course, do not uh, consort with their black peers and organizations like the National Council for Black Studies or the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. In fact, uh, I've often said that these uh, Ivy League scholars would more likely be found twerking beside Cardi B or Lizzo at a Lakers game than going to a black studies convention to present their research. Yeah, well. At the end of the day, this attack on the 1619 Project is an indication that there is an ongoing attempt to silence black voices on the critical question of the creation myth of the United States that glosses over slavery. And in many ways, you can say that that's preparing the ground for glossing over incipient fascism. And I think it's very important for listeners to be aware of this very disturbing and ugly reality. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is really profound. I mean, unlike some of the scholars that you're talking about, I spend most of my time in the current and in the current events. And but with an eye toward history and, and some understanding of history. And you can really see that right now, not just in this country, but around the world. There is this culmination of what happened, of what started, be it in 1619 or in the 1500s, when you have this introduction, you know, Europe into this hemisphere and into Africa. And there is this, the beginning of this project of, of the rape of people and the rape of natural resources. And really, when you look at even climate change now, the rape of the planet and the culmination now of not human progress, right? So I often think that when I hear people who are climate deniers, I'm thinking that they're, they're actually history deniers too, because they don't want to accept the fact that what they consider to be the beginning of kind of European exploitation, uh, ex, um, exploits and the, you know, the, the triumph of kind of Europe around the globe. They don't want to really think of that as really kind of the beginning of the end, you know, <laughs> because not only in terms of people being exploited, resources being exploited, but the very model of exploiting fossil fuels that have, has, you know, will wind up basically destroying the planet. Well said. Okay. Well, we've definitely run out of time. But um, I want to thank you for pinch hitting for the F word for me this week, Gerald. And I'm sure that I'll have a chance to speak to you before the end of the year to talk about 2019. So I won't say, you know, my goodbyes for this year, but I will just say thank you for joining me again today. And uh, hopefully we'll speak again next week just to wind up 2019. I hope so. Take care. Thank you.
And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Special thanks again to Chantel James and Gerald Horn. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And if you check out our podcast, please give us a nice rating. We would very much appreciate that. And thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon for your encouragement and support and allowing us to continue to do the show. The music we played this hour included the Ether Orchestra, Shalela, Bohannon, Bohannon's Beat, and Chikoria, Forgotten Past. If you care about the First Amendment, our right to freedom of speech, and to peaceably assemble, please support our petition campaign at change.org to urge the D.C. Council to hold a public hearing about the actions of the Metropolitan Police Department during this year's illegal siege and takeover of the Venezuela Embassy. We are asking all of our listeners everywhere, but especially those based in D.C., to go to change.org and search for and sign the petition titled Hold Public Hearings on MPD Actions at the Venezuela Embassy. And of course, that's where many of us were physically, verbally assaulted by right-wing thugs, and we can't have that. We have to be able to peaceably assemble and uh, exercise our First Amendment rights, which we have in this country. That's change.org and search for and sign the petition titled Hold Public Hearings on MPD Actions at the Venezuela Embassy. I'm Esther Rivera. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>